0: Hi, I'm Rob, and thanks for discovering season one of Two By Guys. We hope you enjoy it. So in season one, we recorded everything in person. It was pre-pandemic, and we used professional sound booths. And as you'll hear, the audio quality is pretty great. But it was also very complicated and expensive. And when the pandemic hit, Those booths became impossible. So, in season two, we tried recording interviews locally while chatting on Zoom, which kind of worked, but the audio quality was spotty. Sometimes people made manual mistakes with the recording. It was a huge hassle for me to receive the files, convert the formats, compile the audio, edit by hand. I knew I needed a better solution if I was going to continue the podcast and Zencaster was that solution. The thing that was most important to me, knowing how the process works, is that the audio gets recorded locally, not over the internet like Zoom does. When you get up to seasons three and four, you'll hear how good the audio quality is. It rivals what you're about to hear from season one, which was recorded in professional sound booths. And it's so much easier and cheaper. Everyone can record from home with whatever equipment they have, even just a laptop's built-in mic. And then there's the editing and post production. I used to have to go through every track manually, reducing background noise, mixing volumes and levels, making sure my guest and I were synced. Now, Zencaster post production takes care of all of that and delivers ready to upload files. So, if you're thinking about starting your own podcast, I highly recommend Zencaster. It's easy, it's affordable, and it's very reliable, and the sound quality is great. And now, if you go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and enter promo code 2BuyGuys, you'll get 30% off your first three months. That's dot com slash pricing, promo code 2 Guys for 30% off your first three months. It's time to share your story with Zencaster.
1: Welcome to 2BuyGuys. I'm Alex. And I'm Rob. And we are switching things up a little bit. Uh, the first two episodes, we got to chat quite a bit about our stories, and we are really excited to share with you an interview that we had with a, a different bi guy.
0: Yeah, we interviewed Jay Christopher, an activist, an educator, an artist who identifies as fluid. He founded Fluid by Design, which is a support advocacy community for sexually fluid people of color. And in 2014, they began offering MENKIND, the first ever monthly support group specifically for bi-identified, sexually fluid men of African descent. It's kind of like that bi-request group that you and yeah. I met at. And I think Jay Christopher went to that group first too, and yeah. then decided he wanted to start another conversation yeah. that wasn't happening. And you'll hear him talk about that. Uh, Both
1: New York-based groups, uh, very similar in purpose, but this was very like focused in its audience, I think.
0: Yeah. And also, Jay Christopher is perhaps best known as the First bisexual Grand Marshal of Pride. What is the Grand Marshal of Pride, Alex?
1: Yeah, a Grand Marshal is essentially who Pride is honoring that year. Pride picks out figures or corporations or organizations to honor each year. Mm -hmm. And he was the first ever bi person to be honored in that way. So they march right at the front of the parade, essentially.
0: Wasn't uh, Trevor Project where you work a Grand Marshal this year at World Pride?
1: The Trevor Project was actually a Grand Marshal this year.
0: Very cool. So anyway, as you listen to this, I think... What is really interesting about it for me was how many similarities there are in our stories and Jay Christopher's. Like, yeah. I just think a lot of fluid and bisexual people go through lots of similar things. But then also it's very interesting to see where our experiences are, are different. Um, like, for example, as I've said, you know, I feel... As I've explored relationships with people of different genders, that it has actually felt very similar to me. That I've kind of been shocked by how similar it feels. Whereas Jay Christopher talks about having very different types of relationships with men versus women, and that's like that's totally valid too. And actually, I've met so many people in by request and in other places who, who have that experience. And you'll get to hear some of what that's like now.
1: Yeah, but we won't delay any further. Um, why don't we? We'll pass you along to the interview. Yeah, enjoy. We have a guest today, actually. Uh, We have Jay Christopher here with us.
2: What's going on? Good to be here.
0: Very good to have you. Jay Christopher is a native son of Detroit, Michigan. Chris is a mixed media visual artist who studied fine art, African-American studies, and women's studies at Eastern Michigan University, and then enrolled in Howard University's Master of Fine Arts program. He began his work in alternative spaces and with marginalized identities within communities of color. Chris's work as an artist, educator, and community organizer is focused on reenvisioning the psycho-emotional spaces that black men and other men of color have traditionally occupied, with an eye for reimagining the creative and compassionate possibilities within masculinity. Very interesting stuff, Chris. We have a lot to talk about from that alone, don't we?
2: Yeah, that's a run-on there. <laughs>
1: So perhaps a a good place to start is actually, um, since you mentioned it, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you identify.
2: Yeah, so um, I um, identify myself as being, well, really at this particular point in my life, I identify myself as being sexual, Mm -hmm. as being a human being who's sexual. Um, I think my overall feeling is that that's what defines most of all human beings and that there's these various categories that are based on socializations and culture and religion and the various things that bracket who we are. But um, for the purposes of the world that I live in now, I identify as a sexually fluid man of African descent, as opposed to a bisexual, because I'm not interested in uplifting the binary. So I'm interested in uplifting the spectrum. So sexually fluid means I get to move around in that as well.
1: Yeah. So tell us a little bit about kind of how your experience as a sexually fluid man of African descent has influenced the work that you've done, you know, your art Mm -hmm. and your educating of other people.
2: Yeah, I think probably the best place to begin is with the art because I think before I started to educate other people or, or just hold space with other people, I was you know uh, just having a conversation in my work about my experiences and explorations. And so hmm. I think and feel that whenever you realize that you don't fit, so to speak, into whatever the category is or the boxes then whatever the things are that, that identify that becoming question. So like I started thinking about, well, what is masculinity then? Because I feel pretty much like a dude, and, you know, I feel pretty masculine, but I also like men. So yeah. what does that mean? Yeah. I think that I started to have a conversation uh, in my artwork that was an exploration of manhood and then masculinity, which is very different, and then myth yeah. because I was also interested in how we tell our stories and just the whole notion of myth-making. You know how myths are made because you can have personal myths like i mean all of us are one part the truth one part legend one part myth
0: depends (laughs) on who we're
2: talking to right so you know how do we create myths that are uh that support and promote and make us feel good about who we are as opposed to concern ourselves with myths that don't have anything to do with who you are like they don't speak to you at all so how do you recreate all of that i was in graduate school and i was working with a lot of artists working around a lot of artists um who are female identified and they were doing all this work about womanhood, and it was always this dealing with this sort of the sacred feminine, like the idea that the the ovaries and the uterus and the creative center of a woman is is sacred. And I and I realized how when men talk about their dicks, they talk about it in like the third person, like I'm gonna knock some boots, I'm gonna mm-hmm. bang out, I'm gonna lay some pipe, like it's like this whole like it's a thing, it's a machine, it's a tool, you know, like, but yeah. not something sacred. And so I started thinking about, well, what is the sacred masculine? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. So part of that work and taking these sexualized, objectified images of men that were either in sports magazines or in porn magazines and then flipping that narrative to something that is uh, sacred or uh, spiritual um, allowed me to do a couple of things. One thing is play with the sacred and profane, which all artists do on mm-hmm. one level, and then just really to interrogate some of these ideas in, in an effort to self, be self-determined and self-actualized. Yeah. So the way that um, mankind came about, fluid by design came about, is I was uh, listening yeah. to the radio one morning um, on my way to work. I used to development work for a nonprofit, and there was a, a young white woman who was on NPR on uh, Brian Lehrer, and she was talking about bisexuality, and she was talking about how you know um, there was this newfound acceptance for bisexual people, and you know bisexual people, people are embracing bisexuality, and all this like very glorious conversation. I was thinking, not in the black community. Mm-hmm. Not in the black community, because in the black community, bisexual men are held as responsible for the rising HIV rates among Mm -hmm. straight women because of the DL, the down low and stuff like that, that there are so many bisexual men who are not open. And so um, bisexuals are looked at as being very suspicious. And then on the other side, suspicious to the gay community. It's like, well, what do you wanna be? Uh, So you're saying you like women? Like it's this whole like threatening thing about bisexuality. Um, And I think that at Howard, The fact that I was humbly and respectfully kind of popular with the women, but also openly bisexual, Mm -hmm. was super threatening to my professors who were also trying to be with the students as well. (laughs) I hate to say it like that, but I know that to be true. You know, that was true. So I think it was kind of like, well, who is this guy? Like, he's openly bisexual and a black male was like really, I think, something that a lot of people weren't used to. In fact, my girlfriend at the time, she didn't mind knowing herself. She didn't want me to tell anyone, though. She didn't want anybody to, her friends to know that she was dating an openly bisexual dude. Like it was all of that kind of shit. So,
0: How long have you been open about your fluid sexuality and like when did you come to that understanding for yourself and how? Um,
2: since I told my mama, <laughs> you know, that was the most important thing to me. Uh, how old were you? Um... I was in college. I didn't have it. my my first experience wasn't until like 25 or 26 years old. Okay. Yeah. The first time I, you know, bought a Hustler magazine. So Hustler's porn from a long time ago for those who are not who are young. Like an actual
0: to magazine. Yeah. Actual magazine. Like printed on a, a page. A
1: magazine. <laughs>
2: um, you know, I, I kind of graduated from like Playboy and all the like penthouse and these kind of porn magazines to Hustler, and I realized that when I looked at Hustler, one of the things I liked about is that they always had these like soft porn photo sh- shoots where there would be a man and a woman there mm-hmm. and I, w- I found hmm I'm I'm excited about seeing them two together and then I realized hmm I'm excited about seeing him naked as well yeah. so I think at an early age the interest was there you know, like desire was there and you know and, and the funny thing about um retrospect and hindsight is as a grown man an older man I can think now that yeah I remember like my good friend in high school I remember being aware of that he was attractive yeah. I didn't know what those feelings were, but I was aware of his attractiveness. Right. You know, so I think as you get hindsight, you get older, you start to think, well, maybe I knew, well, maybe I knew, well, maybe I knew. Yeah. yeah. So the question of when did you know is, the, I think, a challenging question. When did I first feel mm-hmm. something? When I was very young. When did I first know? In college, when I had the first experience that I had. I grew up around gay people. My mother and father had friends who were gay. That someone would live in a, a different kind of lifestyle was not new to me or new to my family. So... Yeah when I had my first experience, I told my mother because I, like I had met men who were gay and I know that many of them, I knew many of them couldn't go home. They didn't have any relationships Mm -hmm. with their families. Like their families had ostracized them. And so I decided when I had my first experience, which I knew was gonna lead to more experiences because I'm the type dude that, if i taste something and i like it it's on the menu like, yeah. as long as it doesn't, <laughs> right. as long as it doesn't like you know, interfere with anybody else's rights or anything yeah. like that like it's like if it's good for you it's good for me we can do this you know yeah. so i knew i was going to have more experiences but if something happened to me because it, you know this is um late 80s early 90s hiv is really on the rise and rapid so if something happened to me i wanted to know that i could go home mm-hmm. i didn't know what was going to happen yeah. But my joke used to be that if the gay club burns down, I don't want my mama to be like, oh, my son wouldn't be in a gay club. I want to just come get my body because I was in the <laughs> gay club, you know, like I wanted Man. to know. Wow. So once, my mother, once I told my mother, which was over dinner when, one day, I told her I wanted to share something with you. And she was like, okay, what do you, you want to tell me? I was like, well, I've been exploring my sexuality. And she was like, okay, well, what does that mean? And the waitress came to get um, order our drink, get our drink <laughs> order. And um, I said, well, I, you know, I've been sleeping with men. And then she, she looked at me and she said, can you make that a double? to the waitress <laughs> and then we laughed and then she went on to like you know to give me a few tips like she was like you know you know my friend such and such they found him you know dead in his apartment no sign of forced entry robbed like don't pick up anybody you don't know be careful uh-huh. yeah once i knew my mom was good i didn't really give a fuck about anybody else like my father right. never used any other word but faggot. Oh uh-huh. wow. so i did not tell him because we already had like a father-son kind of relationship, you know, Uh I mean, cool, Mm -hmm. but like, you know, I didn't tell him, you know, and he died shortly after that period anyway. But um, once I knew my mom was good, I really, really clearly, really didn't give a fuck what anybody else thought. It's like, whatever.
0: That's great. And was she was supportive of the fluid identity or had you figured that out when you told her? No,
2: I mean, I just said I had been sleeping with men. I mean, yeah. I, I don't yeah. think, at least in my experience, you can have experiences for a while before you actually embrace something. Right. Yeah. You know, you can keep having being like, OK, Right. I'm sure the first few times that some shit that went down, I was like, OK, that's not going to happen again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> like yeah. You know, so and then it just keeps on happening. And then you realize, OK, this is me.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, that and what you were saying before matches so much up with what Alex and I have experienced. And we've talked about this is like we had these attractions and then even started having experiences. But it takes a little while to add them up and realize what that means mm-hmm. and come to that identity. And it is like if you're not in the binary it's a slow process of realizing it because it's a gray area and it's complicated. Mm-hmm. This may have
2: changed now. I mean, I'm a little bit of an older person now, but this may have changed. But, you know, a woman traditionally can have, like, a, an alternative sexual experience while she's in college. And, like, mm-hmm. there's no dude that's going to be like, oh, I'm not going to fuck with her anymore because, you know, she she has some pussy. You right. know, mm-hmm. you know so like she's still fine. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you suck a dick, you're gay. Yeah. For a lot of people. That so, is like, definitely
0: still the perception. Yeah, yeah.
2: So it's like, you know, and figuring out how to negotiate this apples and oranges things, where just because I've now discovered oranges, I still enjoy mm-hmm. apples. <laughs> and what, and how? Occasionally with like a fruit salad. You know, <laughs> but like, you know, but it's like, how do I negotiate that space? And I think for me, the strategy became just being straight up. My joke used to be that if you even act like you're gonna give me some pussy, yeah. I'm gonna tell you what's up. Yeah, Because that way, if it's a deal breaker, at this point, I'm not emotionally invested you can't hurt my feelings by saying all oh, that. I can't go for that. We can be like, yeah. okay, cool. If I get all emotionally invested because I'm an emotional person, and then you're like, I can't do this because I... Then I'm going to feel hurt and rejected and dejected and all this other kind of shit that I wasn't investing in. So my strategy just became saying it, here's what you need to know. Right, yeah. right. it's a good filter for yeah. who's
0: going to accept you or not. And if they're not, then why waste your effort on that?
2: Yeah. yeah. I think what I've been fortunate enough, for whatever reasons, is... I've never been um, turned down by any woman for being bisexual. Wow, If they did, it was after they fucked me. Really? (laughs) So, like, it wasn't before. So, like, I think, and I don't know what that's about other than the energy that you put out and what you draw to you. But I just don't draw the woman to me who's like, oh, I wouldn't fuck around with. I draw the woman who's, you know, like I'm an artist, man. I'm in the arts community. You know, I draw the (laughs) (laughs) Afro-punk, you know, queer community, queer chick.
1: Yeah. You know, who
2: may be straight but, you know, whatever else, you know, like so I, I just haven't had the experience of being rejected around it, which is why I started the men's group. Yeah. Because I knew that there were a lot of men who were really grappling with this whole thing of how to live this duality. And I felt like for whatever blessings I had been able to do that and do that openly. And at that time, I was in a polyamorous relationship, which was going on while I was in the Grand Marshall. So there's like pictures all over the Internet of me and my my poly family It was like four of us. And so I was just really living this life that I look back and think of what the fuck was I doing. But like, you know, I was living this very open, experimental, uh, experimental, experiential life. I felt the same way that about that, living that life as I felt about being Grand Marshal, which was, for me, being Grand Marshal was about humbly giving permission. Like saying to any other dude out there, because I, I realize how I present. I present masculine, I'm a bigger guy. Like, I mean, I present mm-hmm. in a way that people don't think I'm anything but straight anyway, you know, yes. most of the time. So I understood the power of that. I understood what that meant as a Grand Marshal. I understood what that meant in interviews. I understood what that meant in facilitating a group. So my intention was to create space for brothers to really, you know, talk this out, like, you know, and to learn to love and have confidence in themselves enough to know that, like, there's yeah, there's tons of women out here who are still gonna be down.
1: We're talking a lot about women, but have you faced much rejection from men or challenges with men?
2: No. N- n- I- I mean, yes, challenges. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
2: And maybe some rejection, but I have to say that I don't think that any two bisexuals are built the same. Yeah. You know, so there might be, by the term bisexual, uh, which again is not the term I use, there might be some people that are right in the middle Mm -hmm. who love and have the same connection to men and women equally and can have the same experiences equally. I think my emotional orientation still is largely with women. I've only been in one relationship with a guy before, and uh, it was a great relationship for me. I don't think it was a great relationship for him. It was a great relationship for me, and so I think that. Whereas I may have had challenges with guys, um, I have to admit that maybe it didn't mean as much to me emotionally. Like it didn't affect me. Like yeah. I was able to like I was able to negotiate it. I mean, listen, my boyfriend, my one and only boyfriend, Jesse. Uh, shout out to Jesse. Hi, Jesse. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we put up with a lot. <laughs> um, there's a way that I might cuddle with my girlfriend on the couch. That's not how I cuddle with the dude I'm with mm. somehow, whenever I'm with dudes, it's like we're still dudes. This is, you know, very heteronormative thinking. But like I don't think to. Be kissing you on your neck or cuddling with you in that way Uh or holding hands like I don't think I've ever reached to hold the hands of a a man I was with ever like I don't think I've ever done that Hmm. and I don't know if that's some line that I have that I haven't that's fuzzy that or some politics that I have that I haven't worked out I don't I don't know about all of that I just know that what my boyfriend wanted because we were also in this poly thing was for me to treat him in the same way that I treated my girlfriends and I didn't, I guess I hadn't been socialized to do that or didn't know how to do that, but I just didn't do that. Which was oddly enough though, whenever I saw him out in public, I would always go to kiss him in public. He wouldn't kiss me in public. So there was no, it's because of, really? of his stuff. Cause he came out with me. yeah, Like he wasn't out before he came, he got involved with me. It helped me to sort of work out where men uh, sit for me and where women sit for me within this, my fluidity.
1: Yeah. And I think you outlined well a point that I tell a lot of folks who are kind of like exploring their sexuality that it's not about trying to change anything or try to sway anything. Just about kind of opening yourself up to all potential relationships and seeing what feels comfortable.
2: Yeah. And acceptance. Because within the acceptance is healing. So in the healing part, and that's, you know, you tell yourself a whole bunch of fucked up stories about when you don't feel like you're supposed to be who you're supposed to be, right? you yeah. know what I'm saying? Or doing what you're supposed to do. So, um, and I think acceptance has a lot to do with, you know, first comes acceptance, then comes healing. Like, exactly. You know, like, like I'm good, Yeah. but yeah.
0: So can you tell us a little more about Fluid by Design and Mankind? Like what actually are those organizations? How do they function? Who goes to those groups?
2: All yeah. Um, so the group is on hiatus now. MenKind's the monthly men's group is on hiatus now. OK. But this was the first group that was actually for bi identified men of African descent. And African descent was intentional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was not people of color. It was African descent. Yeah. Um, because I really wanted to have a conversation with black men. You know, the first meeting it's had a few people at it. And most of them were people who have worked at GMAD, who were like curious about this meeting. And I just kept having more. And I think I had sort of a field of dreams attitude about it. Like if I build it, they'll come. Mm -hmm. So I built it. and Because there just needed to be a space. And I think as around the city, the word of mouth brother started hearing about this like black bisexual meeting that goes on in Brooklyn. And you know, through that first three or four years, we explored a lot of topics um, from meditation and spirituality to uh, we had dialogues with the trans community because there was a lot of like folks in the group didn't know anything, and, yeah. and what's interesting is that it was a bi-identified group, a sexually fluid group, but a good deal of the, the brothers that were there would have probably identified as gay. Because what I found really interesting is that I felt like there were a lot of brothers who didn't necessarily know if they were gay, they just know that they had to make a choice at some particular point, so they made a choice. Right. Like they didn't see how they could negotiate the duality. And so it was easier to be in to deal with men than it was to find women and still feel like they were integrity and not lying and stuff like that. yeah so I felt like there were a lot of guys at the group who were re uh, exploring that aspect. I think for a lot of brothers uh <laughs> it was just cool to have a space where you could like talk about sucking a dick and not feel like somebody was going to look at you crazy, you know what I'm yeah. saying? As part of a conversation. We didn't have like dick-sucking forums or conversations <laughs> just about that. But you know, like being able to just freely express yourself as a bisexual man and not have other folks. So that's what that's what mankind um, was about.
1: Maybe you can talk a little bit more about being a grand marshal for mm-hmm, Pride. Mm-hmm. That kind of elevated your platform. What What led to that?
2: So the visibility was kind of getting around the city and the word was getting around the city. And then when the grand marshal thing came up, someone recommended me. That's how I got there in the first place. And in all actuality, I think one of the reasons why they chose me is because the bisexual community had been... You know, going to bat with Heritage Pride, who runs the Pride mm-hmm. events for a long time about bi-visibility, mm-hmm. for a long time. Right. And every year had been like, we need to have a bi-grand marshal. We've never had a bi-grand marshal. We've never had a bi-grand marshal. And so finally, when it came time to decide who it was, the new guy who didn't have any baggage attached to him... Politically, you know what I'm saying? Like there was no baggage attached to me. I was just a new guy, fresh on the scene. I had a, uh, I think a story that they found interesting being uh, working in youth development and working with young people and building this new organization and whatnot. That's why they approached me about it. I sat with it for a minute because I wasn't sure if I really was never interested and still not interested in being like on the cover of the book. And so I was really curious about that level of outness and, openness. Right. and I had been teaching for years, I had been teaching all over the city through all kinds of arts programs and, and for the DOE and stuff. So I knew that making this very public decision was going to have a lot of people be like, what? Mm-hmm. Like, what? I didn't know, what? You know, and, and I'm sure that there were faces in that crowd along Fifth Avenue who were like, that's Mr. Neil from Global Studies, you know, from yeah. Global, you know. And then also people who had dated me and been with me and known me and who maybe might feel some kind of way about whatever. Mm-hmm. So I sat with that for about 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and, that's not too long. And, and I'm, being, I'm, being, I'm being joking about it, but, like, I, mean, I didn't sit long with it, you know, yeah. because I, I also <clears throat> felt that I had an opportunity to have the mic. Right. Yeah. And so that meant that I could raise – consciousness around sexual fluidity and around spectrums yeah. and around this as a part of the black community's sexuality and experience as well and people of color and all of that so i had an opportunity to do that and I, and so I, I jumped on that
0: it's kind of crazy how pride was founded by bisexual person, mm-hmm, right, Brenda mm-hmm, Howard? Mm-hmm. And yes. yet there hadn't been a by grand marshal. Like, did you feel any pressure to meet certain expectations as the first one?
2: Yeah, I didn't feel any pressure. I felt uh, a responsibility. I had uh-huh. a lot of great mentors who told me all of this and got me up to speed on all of this information. So once I had That's the good. mic, it was kind of like I was very clear. I felt more of a responsibility to talk about the disparities in the LGBT community, like around almost all the health and well-being disparities um, by identifying People are at the lowest end of that in terms of Mm -hmm. alcoholism, uh, drug addiction, homelessness, like all of those disparities within the LGBTQ community it's bi-identify people, and then after that, trans folks. Mm-hmm. So I got a chance to really raise those disparities. Um, I went to the White House w- uh, with, uh, with uh, the Met Obama and when the um, bi community was working with um, Obama to make sure that there was bi visibility in his agenda. And so just having an opportunity to I had a PowerPoint with all this to raise some of those statistical variables and talk about the amount of money that goes to gain lesbian agenda within the yeah, LGBT right. community versus everybody else's agenda.
0: Barely any You know, for it's really
2: down. an agenda controlled by like Well-off white gays and lesbians yeah. Yeah. like control the agenda of the, of the LGBTQ community on some level, particularly around funding. Yeah, so yeah. it was so a chance like... to have an open discussion around those disparities, which are racialized, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so then that's where you have the intersection of race in this conversation.
1: And even now, the thing unfortunately is black trans women being shot for people exactly. in this country, right? They're even further below black mm-hmm. people in that respect, and part of that is their race, you know, creates that target on them.
0: Yeah, well, and also bisexual people are less likely to be out, and that causes a mm-hmm. lot of internal damage and mental health issues, and I think that's racialized also. I think there's an intersection, because you were talking about the DL. Like, I think it's probably even harder for non-white people to come out as bi or trans.
2: Yeah, and that's why the group was so important, because community, like, I mean, part of those disparities, as you say have to do with not having a, a place or community or fellowship. Right. Or, like, there's no bi club. Right. Yeah. You know, there's yeah, no right. buy clubs like exactly. you know. We, we just kind of weave in yep. and out of the environments we want to be in, yeah. depending where we are. But there's no space, and so you know, creating an actual space. Speaking of space, like we never like we could have gotten free space at the LGBTQ center in, in Brooklyn, but we didn't meet in any LGBTQ spaces because many men who are grappling with this are not going to go to a space that yes. has LGBTQ on the door. Right. Yeah. So we met in museums, and we met in like you know, we met in spaces that were did had that you know were just. Spaces.
0: I totally identify with that because the first time I tried to go to buy request, mm. I walked up to the center and just kept walking. Yeah. I couldn't yeah. go in the door of the LGBT center, and then I a month later I worked up the courage to go to the next meeting. <laughs> <But> <laughs> yeah, that makes yeah. sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think it's especially important, kind of seeing mankind and what the work mankind has done. You know by request and and other spaces almost in any community there becomes kind of the white space we have a tendency as white people to consume a space right due to our privilege and and just the ability to overlook any need for another conversation Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. and i think it's unfortunate that you know the bi communities with so many people being closeted with so many people being erased in general right Mm -hmm. because we're not identifying by people on the street in the same way that it becomes so much more work to identify those spaces, and those spaces are also so much more required, mm-hmm,
2: right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, intersectionality is a bitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, know, it's like, you know, so to be bi and black, and you know, like, yeah. you know, and, or, or, and whatever, whatever else is in your identity, I think all of those things, which is why the conversation in Mankind was not, I always say it was a space that privileged the voices of bi-identified and sexually fluid people, Um, But the conversation was not just about that because I I knew there were a lot of things that folks needed to talk about and share about and be with others about that had to do with just surviving as men of color in America and what that means.
0: I'm curious what your perception is of the connection between fluidity of sexuality and fluidity of gender. Mm-hmm. And especially like within those spaces you created and within the black community, do you see innate understandings and collaborations or where do you see
2: clashes? Um, I see collaboration and understanding uh, facilitated, but not necessarily innate. Uh-huh. In fact, uh, I used to just say fluid and then when someone said to me, well, do you mean sexually fluid or gender fluid? And I was like, oh, gender fluid. Didn't think about that.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Do you
2: know what I'm saying? So there was a blind spot even for me and like, okay, yeah, people can be gender fluid. You know, right. like so I didn't think about that. So a lot of the conversations that came out of Mankind, dude, had to do with conversations that I fucking wanted to have myself. Yeah, I want to know more about this. Maybe other people want to know more about this. I, that's. I think that's a great question. Unfortunately, I don't have an answer to it, except that as someone who is part of a Air quotes, marginalized community. You know, there's not a lot of room at the margins to be at each other's throat about shit. Right. Yeah. So totally. if we're can get into some conversation, or at least agree to disagree, or at least agree to you know, like I don't really understand. Put like this, I can't put my head around what it means to be a trans person because mm-hmm. I'm cis.
0: Right.
2: So for me, it's like, well, boy, I feel like a boy. I can't possibly know what that feels like, but I don't have to know. Yeah. Right. I just need right. to. Acknowledge that it is what it is, it is, and I honor and respect it. Right. That's it. And so that was the spirit of the conversation is that you don't we don't have to agree. Right. Yeah. We can agree to disagree, but let's be in community around it.
0: I yeah. think something my my sexual identity has helped me learn is that when somebody else tells you something about their identity, believe them. Mm-hmm. Because especially when it comes to your gender identity, in addition to sexual orientation. It's not easy to come out and say that you're not the gender you were born under or that you're exploring that. And so you don't have to exactly understand what that is like, but you can believe that person and believe in their experience that they're telling you. Mm-hmm.
2: And hold conversation
1: more than anything. And right. learn, learn conversation about it. And listen.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, part of my work is implicit bias work, and that's all about that. Like, you don't mm-hmm. have to really yeah. understand. You just have to, you know, like, it's, you don't have to get it. It's, but it is. right? And my personal belief, you know, it's, I think I started off this interview by saying that I really identify as sexual, because in my belief it's like, we can keep adding letters to the end of LGBTQ as yeah. people discover various ways in which they express themselves. And eventually we'll get to human beings are sexual.
0: Yeah, That yeah. was
2: always my goal, that one day you'll open a human development book in junior high and it'll say human beings are sexual. Here we're going to explore a few ways yeah, It really has to do with how the Western paradigm is constructed, this idea that everything has to have a category and yeah, a, right. a way of measuring it and a way of understanding it. That's a Western paradigm. And this is, yeah. you know, when you look into indigenous cultures where they have two-spirited, you know, and different kinds of ideas around gender identity and whatnot, like there's this sense that there's a fluidity in, in a lot of indigenous cultures anyway. Yeah. This is about the West and the West's need to name something. <laughs>
0: Is there anything that you would want white people, especially heteronormative white people, but also maybe queer white people to understand about the non white queer experience that isn't talked about or that is like treated in a harmful way?
2: Hmm. So you know that I'm an <laughs> I'm an anti racist educator. Right. Yeah. So this yeah. is what I do. Right, yeah. yeah. So, you know, Hell yeah, there's a whole bunch of shit they can say. <laughs> but, you know, I think a lot of times, when, when, whenever white folks ask me questions similar to that, I say that what I w- would want white folks to spend time doing is understanding who they are in all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You know, I think a lot of the paternalism of whiteness is around, like, you know, racism and things like that being something that white people are going to help get rid of for the benefit of black people. But racism collapses everybody's identity, mm-hmm. steals everybody's imagination. As you, as you probably know, you know, Jews weren't always white. Italians weren't always white. Irish weren't always white. They were invited into whiteness as a part of the making of this country and white supremacy within the American context. Right. Yeah. And so with doing that, then you leave your Italianness behind and you leave your Irishness behind. So, like, whiteness has robbed white folks of a lot. You know, so yeah. there's a lot to think about in terms of how the intersection of white supremacy and queer identity is for you. And yeah. then how yeah. you act upon how you show up in the world as a result of that, right. would be the thing that I would offer. You know, I think um, the thing that's really interesting is, and I may have said this to you already, is that you know uh, my sexual orientation is not my lead identity marker anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a period of time for a couple years, particularly within when I was doing all of this work in the LGBT community, when I was like Chris the BI guy. Yeah, but first and foremost, a black man. And that, the specter of racism and the way that it impacts every aspect of existence for people of color. You know, um, when I was looking at the disparities, there was still within that LGBTQ tent a lot of disparities around race. I mean, I think my biggest disappointment, and not that I had any kind of pie-in-the-sky deal about it, was how racist I found Heritage of Pride to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like as an organization and a lot of the other LGBTQ community organization when I went to things the conversation was framed from a privileged white perspective almost always mm-hmm. and everyone else in the audience was trying to get another identity a kind of conversation in there. I thought that part of the reason why my the space that I created was so valuable was because there were a lot of folks who went to these other spaces and just felt like it's a white space that I'm included in like my work and everything else in America. You know, what I'm saying not a space for me.
1: Like people talk, you know, in feminist discussion, people talk a lot about white feminism, mm-hmm. for example, right? And I feel like that's for the last couple of decades, even that's been a term that has been coined, mm-hmm. uh, you know, used appropriately and understood. I think that's the next stage potentially in the queer oh, without discussion, a right? Because that's a huge piece that's missing, especially, you know, here in New York, the most diverse city in the country. Mm-hmm. And I still have the feeling that like that gay white man is going to take any queer space and make it his own.
2: Yeah, right. I agree. I agree. I agree. That, um, and that is the most difficult part of all of the discussions that I have in anti-racism spaces is the conversation around whiteness. Like, that's where all my pushback comes from. That's where all the, like, uncomfortable feelings and the fragility and the tears come from, because it's very rarely our um, white folks really asked to even think about what that is. Right or what that is or what that means or how it shows up or any of those kinds of things.
0: I do think you're so right and that is so important for white people to think about and talk about. You know, I framed the question sort of from that bias point of view, but I I agree with what you're saying so much because a lot of those white privilege and white supremacy and also heterosexual privilege was totally invisible to me until I started having sort of a crisis of my own identity Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that, forced me to think critically and interrogate myself and my Mm. identity and it came out first in terms of my sexuality but then once i started looking at that and breaking down the structures that were in place and the things that i had been taught that then gave me a new understanding of white supremacy and of my white privilege and it all felt connected and i think unless you have that kind of crisis like Mm. i had it's relatively easy to go through life and not think about any of this stuff and for your privilege to be totally invisible to you.
2: I agree. I mean, being identifying as a sexually fluid person and being involved in all the stuff I was involved in didn't stop me from being a patriarchal asshole from, from time to time.
1: <laughs> yeah, right.
2: <laughs> you know, I was still very heavy heteronormative practices, very... You know, like my masculinity was structured and constructed in a way that was would be considered today toxic. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah, I'm still doing right, all of right, that stuff. Right. You know what I'm saying? Um, so yeah, me too. I still probably like, do. Yeah, even even I think the work that I've done, like you know, um, the work that I've been doing in particularly in the Center for Racial Justice and Education, which I'll put a plug in for, is that there's a lot of uh, very diverse identities um, in that organization, and working with uh, we always work in cross racial teams, and I have. A lot of the, my white co-trainers have said to me, you know, I'm really happy to work with you because you teach me so much about, then show me so many things I didn't realize. But I'm really happy to learn, work with some of the female-identified uh, trainers I work with because they catch me on shit that is man shit that I have complete blinders on because I just never think about it. Even down to, you know, pronouns. Like, I used to say this joke when, when I, in my trainings, um, when I introduced myself, I said my pronouns, are he, him, and bruh. And everybody would always laugh. Ah. Mm-hmm. And then one yeah. day someone, I was out in Seattle and a person who was trans-identified said, um, introduced themselves and said, I appreciate it if we don't make jokes about pronouns. Yeah. Well, pronouns didn't mean shit to me because I'm cisgendered and you know in the norm and a pronoun didn't mean that much to me. Yeah. And my point is that you know all of this work in identity uh, and justice is illuminating. I was saying to my friend the other day, my colleague the other day, it's like it's the gift that keeps on giving in a lot of ways because I, I never walk away from any experience having not had an, an aha moment out of something like either in my own transformation and growth or my understanding of the work that I do so
0: I also think it's it's harmful to be a cog in an unfair machine even if you're in a place of privilege within that machine and especially when you don't see how that machine works mm-hmm. uh, so like when we recognize where we are in that machine that's the first way to start to combat it
2: mm-hmm yeah, and that's what creates the fragility in a room <laughs> yeah. you, know, I, I you, you know and and, and right. which is okay. You know, I don't have a problem with with white fragility. It's just that it's funny the question that you asked me just a few minutes ago. Right. The first thing that came to mind in the back of my mind was that we and and I mean, this collective we, which I probably don't have the right to speak for. Are tired of educating white folks on yeah. what it uh, what oppression is. Yeah, like, yeah. go read a book. Go find out for yourself. I'm not holding space for you to to cry about your aha moment just now that you're a white woman. Like, I've had people in training say, "I just realized I was white like three years ago." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I see. I get it. You know, like, and, and at the same time, in terms of emotional labor, and particularly women of color have held that space of like educating and holding the emotions for yeah. everyone on this shit. Yeah. Yeah. Like, your moment of, like, taking care of white folks in the room, you know what I'm saying, yeah. as they have this moment of transformation where they realize. So I think on some level when you asked that question, I was thinking, I don't have anything to tell you. Go, 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 go <laughs> yeah. There's a whole yeah. bunch of shit. You did a Robin D'Angelo book. You know, that's what yeah. I'm saying. That's, go read that. Yeah. Affirmative Action was white. Like, there's a whole yeah. bunch of stuff out here, like, you know, to get clear on on whiteness and white supremacy. Yeah. And it's not the role of the people of color in your life yeah. to, like— to To teach you that, right. yeah, and to educate you on that, they may choose to in your relationship, but it's not their role. Yes,
0: yeah. well, thank you for educating us on that at my request. But yes, I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> we appreciate that, and thank you uh, for giving us a little bit of that education and also just having a conversation about you and who you are and everything.
2: Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, uh, it's been it's been good. It's been fun.
0: So that was our interview with Jay Christopher. Um, You know, listening to it again, I feel a little awkward about the way that I asked that final question about race and intersectionality. But I also think it led to a really good and important conversation. And I actually think it reminds me of uh, my bisexual experience and, like, sometimes the way that my parents or some friends have asked me, you know, what do you want me to do differently or what do you want me to say differently to you now that you know i know that you're by and like often my answer is really just you know, I want you to learn more about queerness and what this stuff means. I want us all to have a better understanding of these issues. And so, like, his answer really made a lot of sense to me.
1: Yeah, and I think I've experienced a lot when I talk with folks of color or with women or with trans folks, like, a lot of the kind of, like, read the book response, right? Uh Like, just, like, go read a book, right? Uh And I think that's super important to, like, validate that, like, that's the way I respond all the time Mm -hmm. to, like, you want to know what it's like queer? Listen to the podcast in this case, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I don't I don't want to like have to educate the person right, right in front of me in that moment and like have that put on me, right?
0: Yeah, right. And it's also how I learned about a lot of this is by doing yeah. my own research and learning about it. Yeah. And actually another thing that Chris said that I've been thinking about, he talked about these intersecting identities and he talked about Italian and Jewish identity and how you sort of set those aside to become a white in this country. And I've been thinking about that a lot because I am Jewish. And when I started coming out as bi or realizing it, it suddenly felt very connected to my Jewish identity in a way that mm-hmm. I couldn't quite put my finger on. And I think this sort of is the way, which is that like, as a Jew in America... I can pass for white, right? Like, you know, I am a white person. And when I'm in a space where it may not be totally safe to identify as Jewish, I have learned from a very young age not to identify as Jewish Mm -hmm. and to pass as not Jewish to stay safer. And I think that I learned that at such a young age that when I then did that with my sexual identity and my, you know, bisexuality and learned to pass as straight... It felt so similar.
1: Maybe that's why you could kind of pass it straight for so long. Right. right. I felt like, I don't comfortable think I doing had, that. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I would have had that energy to, like, pass yeah. for that long and to, like, hide that label. Right. But maybe your label as Jewish has right. your identity as it's just kind of trained you a little bit better. I think there's commonality amongst all those identities that are perhaps you can pass as something mm-hmm. else, pass as the more privileged form of it, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think... You know, there, there are plenty of other examples of that, I think, of right off the bat, like, you know, disability and mm-hmm. disabilities that folks might have or or various kind of gender identities, maybe like passing yeah. as, you know, male, as white. Absolutely. But yeah, I think that's an interesting observation. I don't know if I've yeah. ever noticed that one before.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you, Chris, for sparking that discussion. And uh, I hope you all enjoyed that interview. We will be back next week with another great interview. Dr. Jane Ward, who wrote an awesome book about fluid sexuality, mostly among straight identified men. Uh, So come back for
1: that next week. It's really awesome. Yeah, super excited for that one. And thank you all for listening to Two Bad Guys.
0: Our music is by Ross Mincer and graphic design by Caitlin Weinman. This podcast is edited by Moxie Pung and is also produced by Moxie Pung, Matt Loomis, Alex Boyd, and me, Rob Cohen. Thanks for listening to Two Bye Guys.